0: Hey, fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so, I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. What to do fam? Welcome to another episode of the myths that make us podcast. And today we have on one of my closest soul sisters, Holly Rose. She's the host of the Thought Room podcast, which is the podcast that the day after I had finished doing my four nights of ayahuasca, I went to her room at, at um, Sultara, and she interviewed me over my experience. And it's my favorite podcast about my ayahuasca experience. It's not the most linguistically integrated, but it's the one where I can feel my energy in that state. And whenever I have to recalibrate my meat suit and my ego, I'll go back and re-listen to that podcast just to feel the energy state that I was in, and she's an incredible interviewer, and she's one of the people that I think sees the power of stories as clearly and as deeply as I do, and she has such a gift for telling stories, and it's going to become amazingly evident on this podcast. Uh, This is one of my favorite podcasts, and it's one of the few that I've done in person since the whole quarantine dance has started, and so there's a special magic to it that um, is harder to get when you're interfacing with screens. Um, you guys are gonna love this one. And this podcast is brought to you by my journaling course. Um, I really, really believe that journaling is one of the fundamental habits that we can use to understand what we are and to become aware of the spell casting that we do on ourselves every day by the thoughts that we use to describe our experience of life to ourselves. And this journaling course is, um, it's the best I've done so far at being able to articulate the magic of journaling. And if you're interested in becoming aware of the parts inside of you, if you're interested in alchemizing any traumas from your past, if you're interested in creating a vision for your ideal future check it out it's to be frank it's fucking good and um i get constant emails and responses from people about how it's helped change their life and how grateful they are that it that it exists so you want to check that out go to ericgotzi.com as always thank you guys so much for your attention and your love i really truly appreciate it Namaste.
1: What were you going to ask me?
0: Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hallie Rose, you recently turned 30. Yeah. And I know that a part of what you've been doing the last couple of months, my projection is you anticipating this, is starting to go through all of your journals... And then to alchemize it into a book. And that's something that I would like to explore. And then we'll see where the podcast goes from there because they already know your myth. You know, that they fucking listened to it in the past. And if you haven't, go check out episode seven or something. Like, just.
1: Yeah, eight, yeah. maybe. I don't know.
0: Um, and hear one of the best storytellers that's ever been on the podcast. And then I told her she, she should probably start a podcast. And now she has a podcast called The Thought Room. But um, what is. What got you into, what called you to begin this journaling project that is now becoming a book?
1: Mm. Well, so I started journaling in probably 1997, 1998, around there. So, so my oldest journals are from like seven or eight years old. So I don't know what called me in the first place to begin the journey of journaling, but It was something inexplicable from from a very young age that's how i was playing really like my parents would just look over and i would just be writing from the moment i knew how to make letters and i read very early i think i was reading at like four years old nobody taught me i kind of just looked over my mother's shoulder as she was teaching my older brother how to read and spontaneously started reading I also was born three weeks early. I told this story in my newsletter the other day, but I was born three weeks early. My mom was in a, a soft tub, hot tub, and I was to be a water birth, a home birth. And I popped out before the midwife even got there. Like by the time the midwife got there, I had like eaten, I had poops, like nobody knew exactly my birth time or my weight. I just came out like ready to go. And so I started telling stories. My mother tells me. That I started telling stories at around like three or four and they were good like they had like a beginning a middle and an end and I have these like old 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 taped together little makeshift books that I had made where I would draw a picture that was like a stick figure and my mom would go "Hallie, what did you draw and I would proceed to tell her like an entire story Um, like there was this one, I still have this one. It was from I think 1993. So it was three years old. And there was this story about this little elephant who who didn't have any friends, and um he was really sad all the time. And he one day he saw a rainbow. I think this is something how it went, and he wanted to climb up to the top of this rainbow. And everybody told him that elephants couldn't climb a rainbow. And so throughout the story, I think I had like three, he visited like three different animal characters. And it was like, um, you know, he he met a grasshopper. And the grasshopper was like, all you got to do is just jump. So he has this whole conversation with his grasshopper. And the elephant tries to jump, and he can't jump. High enough to reach the top of the rainbow. So, you know, he talks to another animal and uh, it's like a bird. And the bird's like, you know, all you got to do is just flap your wings. And the elephant's like, I don't have wings. And so he's like frustrated, but, you know, he's kind of like meeting all of these characters along the way. Finally, he meets a third animal and I can't recall what it was, but the animal just says, well, all you have to do is just believe three years old I'm writing this and so the elephant with all his might closes his eyes really tightly and he just wishes so hard and he believes and he takes his big elephant foot and he puts it on the edge of the rainbow and miraculously he feels it holding its, his weight underneath it and he begins to walk up to the top of the rainbow and he sits up at the top of the rainbow and he looks down and there's all his friends. There's the grasshopper. There's the bird and he he did it and he found this magic within himself that only he could give himself, right? So I still have these like little books. I started writing these little stories. I started writing. My mom would transcribe them because this is before I could even write and so there was something about story that innately enamored me from the beginning. I went to a Waldorf school growing up, and if anyone knows about Rudolf Steiner or Waldorf education, it's very much rooted in story. So the entire curriculum is based around this idea of bringing children through the journey of the soul in, in using human history. So you go through all the myths, like uh first grade is fairy tales second grade is fables right so aesop's fables and God kind of like damn. black and white morality third grade is the hebrew myths also known as the old testament uh-huh. um, fourth grade is norse mythology fifth grade is like you get into the indian myths you get into medieval times and we kind of learn about the evolution of what it means to be a human being. And these threads are tied through every single subject. Wow. So even if I'm teaching writing and I'm teaching the kids, because I was actually, I became a Waldorf teacher later in life. So I actually taught, I remember teaching, I think my favorite year was teaching about Norse mythology. And everything was knitted into that. So <laughs> That is
0: so dope.
1: Yeah, man. Like I would take my kids for a wow. walk down by the ravine. And this one day, I just was like, everybody pick up like 30 stones. And each, they were like, what are we doing? I was like, it's a surprise. So everybody picked up stones and we brought them back and we painted the runic alphabet. And so each kid had their own set of runes. And then, you know, we were, we were teaching them about Thor and his hammer. And like, there's just something so magical about stories. You and I, have to, I mean, you and I are all about this, but this is partly what your podcast is, is everybody remembers their favorite stories as a kid. Mm-hmm. That's the power of story. So if we know that from a psychology standpoint, why are we not utilizing that in the, the form teach. of education that we're choosing? So this is really what what we know works in Waldorf education. And I really credit that to a lot of my love of story because I did I did go there preschool and kindergarten and they don't even start teaching reading until first grade Um, some kids don't read till second or third grade in Waldorf education and it's not really seen as problematic which I find is like really interesting and quite different from when I was teaching in the public schools but anyway back to the journals so started writing very very young and writing was always my it was my secret little world and it was a place I could go where I think that was me learning to meditate before I could meditate and I'm sure you resonate with that because I know you really believe in the power of journaling and how much it can reveal about ourselves and I remember so after I left the Waldorf school my parents went through like a three-year really messy divorce and custody battle and went from living on like this huge property in upstate New York and had the private school and all of this to like squishing into a tiny two-bedroom apartment with my three brothers and my mom. I remember I was 12 I think at the time and I had to share a room with my three brothers which is like when you're going through puberty and you're like trying to share a room with your three brothers and it was just it was really it was really hard and really messy and the only area that I had to myself was this like tiny closet really small like smaller than this table we're sitting at. It was just enough to fit a beanbag chair in, and I had a little pull light, and I would go in there. I'd pull the light. I'd sit on the beanbag chair, and I would write, and I would write letters to my future self. And I still have some of them. They're pretty heartbreaking because so I was like, "Dear Hallie, where do you live now? Like, has the fighting stopped? And like, how do you? Are you in school? Because at the time, you know, we had to leave our our private school, and then I started homeschooling and. So I was always this kind of like melancholic, introspective kid. I have journal entries from September 11th because I was home and I watched it on TV, September 11th, 2001. And I was 11 years old. This is wild. I have a lot of the major events in history of the last 30 years wow. recorded. Like
0: That's such a gift to yourself too.
1: Yeah. Like Iraq Wars, I wrote about that. I was a teenager and... Um, you know, Trump election, like every every like major political, it's in there. And of course, also all of my major firsts. So my first kiss, which was really late, it was at like sixteen. I have that in detail. You know when I lost my virginity and every time something painful happened, when my when my brother died of a heroin overdose, like all of these things um, are recorded in these pages. And I never knew why I was writing it. It was like something else was writing me. I just knew that I had to do it and I can't tell you how strange this process has been to go back through because I will read the same thing that I've written Mm. like over (laughs) the span of like five different years and I'll I'll say something like, oh my gosh, it feels so good to write again. I know I need this in my life daily. My Mm. life is better. It's different. It's calmer when I write, this is my medicine. And then like, I'll forget and I stop yeah. writing and I'll just, we loop, we loop back to it. So I think I knew I was writing this book for a long time. I ha- actually had a really interesting experience when I went to do ayahuasca for the first time, which was actually after we did the first podcast mm. together on your podcast. So, so much has happened in my life since then because now I've done 13. I ask the ceremonies. But when I went for that first set, I remember that my stories came up, my journals came up in ceremony. I was asking a question like, what about my book? What about my book? And the messages that I was getting was like, your book is not what you think it is. Because I had this whole vision that I was going to um copy the actual pages of my journal with my my handwriting and show people my real handwriting and these like deep dark devastating stories that are in there and the message was like these journals are for you these stories are for you to remember and to titrate the truth. So the journals are, the the book is not just transcribing the journals. And that like blew my mind because I was just thinking, oh, this will be so cool to show people real journals. I've never seen a book like this. And it really was an important turning point because I had to let go of a lot of the suffering and the attachment to suffering I had around these stories because yeah, I can tell the stories. I I can delight in the melodrama of right. these stories uh-huh. and ham it up because they are fucking dark. But that's not the point of living. Like to wave my flag and say, look how much suffering I've been through. You know, that doesn't really serve anybody. And I, I learned that in, that in some of those ceremonies because I suffered so hard. I was vomiting. I was, and I was asking my inner like, what's going on here? and it was like how much do you love your suffering how much do you love yourself how attached are you and i was like i want to let this go and you it was like you have to let go of the stories and i didn't want to let go of the stories and i had this actual image of my suitcase it's an actual piece of baggage literal piece of baggage with like 40 diaries in it and i saw myself like lugging it Mm. and it was like here's your suffering here's how it's weighing you down and i didn't want to let go of the stories because stories are how we create meaning and if i let go of how much i had survived and suffered then who was i and was i better than anybody else is the truth is the ugly truth it was like that's what made me special was that i had like lived through these crazy ass things and so i had to sit with that and be like okay yeah it's possible to be like special and not special at the same time do you know what i mean it's possible to be like yeah i did that good job and also let's not stay stuck in it let's like use it let's move the energy let's help other people So there were definitely some reframes that needed to happen during that process. And then um, flashing forward to this January after I spent three months living down at Soltara Healing Center, which is the ayahuasca center I was at, launching my podcast down there and really going much deeper with the medicine and unbundling some of my own stories I came out of that. I had a very unexpected, jarring and quite traumatic breakup with somebody that I thought was my twin flame essentially. And it happened like a week out of leaving the ayahuasca center. We had actually sat in ceremony together that last week I was there. It fucking gutted me. And I, I had been through a lot. So I had this like false assumption that I was okay. And when it happened, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I've been through so much, whatever. And then it was like the weight of COVID, coming down on everybody, processing my breakup, being quarantined in a place when I'm a tumbleweed, like I'm usually traveling. So it was just like all these pieces came together where I was like, okay, hello, depression, my old friend, like you're here again. And so I started writing the book because I, I found myself quarantined with this suitcase full of journals, and I think that I had gone so deep with the medicine, I had really lost a sense of, like, where I'd come from. Like, I feel like I forgot everything, and I just felt completely new and untethered like really untethered and unsure of, now I had lost this relationship that was my foundation. I couldn't be traveling, which was kind of my thing. So I went back to the the stories and I was like, where have I come from? Where have I come from?
0: What was that moment for you where you either were called or decided to start this, turning the journal into a book? Like Mm -hmm. the moment? (sighs)
1: I don't know. I think, I think that, well, actually what happened was in the breakup. So, so this suitcase of journals is like my most prized possession. When I had went, when I had decided to go to Costa Rica, I put my boyfriend at the time in charge of these journals and uh, asked him to like keep them in a safe spot. And he was driving to my parents' retreat center. I said, can you leave them there? Anyway, we have this unexpected early breakup and we were supposed to fly back from Costa Rica together. We, you know, I was like, I'm going my own way. you got to do your thing. I got to do mine. And so he ends up flying back to my parents' place to get all his, his stuff and his car alone. Let's talk about like a really heavy sort of <laughs> walk of shame. My parents are like, where's Hallie? It was just crazy. And um, then, I, then I needed some space to heal. And I remember asking him like, hey, I need like a month at least. And I came to find out, like when I got back from Costa Rica, I couldn't find my journals. I didn't really think about it. I was like, oh, they must be at the other, you know, somewhere else, my dad's house maybe. And then I got to my dad's house and like they weren't there either. And I reached out to my ex and I was like, yo, where'd you put my journals? He's like, oh, they're in the trunk of my car. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 Wait, what? Why have you had my journals in the trunk of your car for two months since our breakup and not thought that that's a thing that I would not want to know. And I had a huge meltdown. So I was like, you need to get these to me immediately. Like it was like, that would be the one thing I would save in a fire. Right. And this is just like, this is when COVID's just starting to ramp up. And I was like, you need to drive to me tomorrow and, and give me these. Like, why are they in Pennsylvania with you? And it was really hard. And, I definitely regressed in that moment. I had a lot of rage. I felt like my most private heart musings were just like in the trunk of his car. And why, you know, why did you take these? So I think it was divine because then we had to drive, we had to meet, there was that extra closure. And suddenly I found myself having these journals with me during the quarantine. So. I was like, man, haven't haven't looked at these in a while. And also like, why do I keep attracting these same patterns in relationship? I want to start figuring this out. So let me go back. So it was just like an evening where I just spread them out across the floor with curiosity and started flipping through. And I was like, all right, wow, okay. I don't do that anymore. That's good. Okay. Still do this. Interesting. All right. Going to look at that, going to write that down, going to reframe that for myself. And then I I just knew it was time. So I you know, I downloaded a writing program because I knew I needed a way to organize all of this and tag it. Like I have this really intricate tagging system. So I'm tagging like I have a tag for like exes and lovers. Sorry if you've ever dated me. You you might be in my book. Uh, <laughs> I have a tag for, you know, Spiritual awakening, I have a tag for plant medicine, I have a tag for depression and emotions and nonviolent communication and so I probably have like over a hundred tags and whenever anything comes up in each particular entry I'm transcribing, I, I'm like making this network. So yeah, it's gonna be it's it's quite a, a magnum opus for sure, and it has been the most incredibly healing. Process to bring my current awareness back to the ancient stories and Realize I get to choose how I feel about my story now with with this new awareness I can wallow in what has happened or I can just adjust everything so that it feels better for me moving forward and empower myself
0: What are some of the patterns that you discovered that you either Want to change, have changed, or are proud that you have that story?
1: I think that did a lot of work on speaking up, feeling deserving of asking for what I wanted. I think that growing up, and what happened with my parents' divorce and my mom being like a single mom of four kids under eight years old. We were doing a lot of traveling with her. We were homeschooling. I learned to just kind of keep my mouth shut and try to not stir things up. Things were really hard and dramatic in our family, tumultuous and I didn't wanna make things worse for my mom. It was already really erratic and we were in and out of lawyers' offices and psychologists' offices and so I just, didn't want to stir up any emotion. And I I would, I learned from a very young age to bottle it up and then it would come out in unhealthy ways. So I spent a lot of time being manipulative and getting attention, you, you know, using my sexuality in distorted ways that i wasn't even aware i was doing it i was doing the best to navigate the world with the tools i had at the time and that was the way that the world was interfacing with me so i just was like this is what i gotta do to survive and so i felt so much tenderness reading back and going like oh sweetheart okay that's what was going on there with that person or and now i just I see the, the hurt that was underneath and I, I now am giving myself permission and surrounding myself with people who understand but I'm giving myself permission to feel all of my emotions and you know I was with uh, I was with someone yesterday and I was like hey I really f- I feel some emotion coming up within my chest and it's in my throat and I feel like, you know, were listening to music? I was like, I feel like I might cry. And that person was like, that's great. Thanks for letting me know. Like, I hope you feel that. I hope you let yourself feel that and feel safe to feel that. And as soon as I spoke it like, and allowed myself and they gave me permission, gave the green light, I just had a quick little sob and then moved through it. And I shamed myself so much for being an emotional person because I didn't want to cause anybody problems. I didn't want to put that on people. And what I was doing was stifling this whole upper spectrum of what are my greatest gifts to give to the world. Because that level of emotion, this place that I go when I tell stories, this comes from immense compassion, immense feeling, having, having really allowed myself on a physical level to, feel suffering surge through my body. And then when I meet you on the street and you're suffering and I look in your eyes, I can tell you I've been there and you will feel it. You will see it in my eyes. And that can only be felt and experienced if I allow all parts of the truth of who I am. And I'm a very emotional being. So it's been a training to kind of open up to that, but that is one of the absolute biggest improvements I've seen in myself is feeling deserving of asking for what I want unapologetically and being, being pleasantly surprised, I think, at how that's received. And then if it's not received well, then that to me is not a reflection of me. It's more an indicator of some fine tuning I need to do and who's surrounding me and like what level of personal work are they at?
0: What's been the most surprising thing that you've either learned or remembered going through this project?
1: The most surprising thing. Let me think about that for a second. I wrote a newsletter the other day for my 30th birthday, kind of reflecting on what the last 10 years, or even five years have been, and all of the different things that I've made it through. And I think that's the most surprising thing, is is that I've been able to (laughs) live through it. and just like feel proud of myself. I think I think we don't often give ourselves pats on the back. That goes for anybody. Other people see things in us and they'll go, wow, you're so like, this is actually a really fun thing. Uh, last year, two really good girlfriends of mine and I had a weekend away in Burlington, Vermont. And one of them suggested this exercise, which is, we smoked a little weed and we were like, all right, let's name the five top traits we see in this person, but it has to be consensus. So there were only three of us, but it was like the two people that were doing it were staring in the eyes of the person who was being named with all of these traits. And we were like, how about this? How about that? How about this? And we, we picked five and By the end of it, the three of us women were just sobbing because we were feeling the love for ourselves reflected through the eyes of people who knew us best, who were seeing things about ourselves. They're like, what? How did you not know that? Like what? Like, I think for me, they had just said um, brave was the number one. And And I was like, wait, what? And the two of them were like, oh, my gosh, you're the bravest person I know. And I was like, wow, that's never a word I would choose for myself, and it's just so deeply moving. So, yeah, I think to to, to just, like, read back on my stories, sometimes it feels like I'm watching a movie, yeah. where I go, wait, that really happened, and then that happened, and then I did that, and so it's surreal. It's surreal.
0: You can feel the magic of what this practice is giving you now as you go through it. And I can feel that there's a part of it that is ineffable gratitude. What story could you give people listening Mm -hmm. who you know, if they did this for the next 10 years, that it would be the greatest gift that they could possibly give to themselves. It would be the thing in their life that they would probably be the most grateful for and would transform them in a way that they can't imagine but they just don't journal.
1: Mm.
0: If you could tell a story.
1: If I could tell a story?
0: To move the people who <laughs> want to be moved in the direction to begin journaling.
1: Huh.
0: Mm. It doesn't have to be a story. It could just be like, right, motherfucker.
1: Well, what I want to say is that You and I talked about this when I interviewed you. Was that this week? Man. It yeah. was like <laughs> two what days is time? ago or three days
0: ago.
1: <laughs> but we talked about the 68,000 thoughts a day thing. Yeah. And that 98% of them are repeated. And I feel like we're such creatures of habit. And when I think about life, life is really about, it's what, poets know it's what songwriters know it's what artists know it's about being in what feels mundane and then just like seeing the magic or seeing the beauty so when I write about things that are like me sitting under a tree and the way that the light is hitting the leaves in this like liquid golden way or the birds are making this sound or the crickets and nothing particularly radical is happening but i am there i'm in that moment that's life like that's living and when i read these stories back i can transport to these moments i feel like i can live this life infinity times just by going back and reading these stories so we all have a propensity to let life pass us by because we're so goal oriented we're focused on the next thing that we're going to attain or how we're going to fix things all the time there's nothing to fix just have to slow time down and allow your story to be what it is in the moment just with complete non-judgment so i I can't even say like one particular story that would make everybody want to journal i would just say that your life will reveal itself to you like the goddess undressing herself and you will see layers of yourself in these pages that is it's a secret world that you have to let yourself into that only you know how to get there and the beautiful thing is you can't do it wrong. There's no map. You just have to go in the dark, fumble your way around. You will write things down that you didn't know you felt until you wrote them. Something so beautiful about, you know, I, I've started writing the book on the computer, but there's so some, something so beautiful about pen on paper. I am such a snob when it comes to stationery and getting a good pen. This Mm -hmm. is, I mean, you know, this from the artist's way, the Julia Cameron. Yeah. Um, she says in that book, like spend the money on getting yourself paper. That's the right way. Like I like, I like this paper. I found this paper that's like made out of stone and it's like really milky and smooth. And then getting yourself like a good, I like calligraphy pens and I still like to write in cursive often, which by the way, they've started phasing that out of schools. They're not teaching kids to write in cursive uh, anymore. They still do in Waldorf schools because there's this like artistic element and and there's something about the connectivity of the brain and the flow and the right and the left hemisphere. And it's this whole thing that happens when we're writing in a an unbroken line. So I still love... For me, that's the way that I flow. And um, yeah.
0: The story that comes up for me when I think about journaling is um, Goethe wrote a poem Mm. called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And it goes basically, and it was made famous by Fantasia in like the 50s. But there's a sorceress apprentice who is being taught by a sorcerer. And uh, the sorcerer tells the apprentice that he needs to clean you know, the house uh, while he's out. And so the apprentice casts a spell that creates a golem. And a golem is basically a magical creature that carries out a single task over and over and over. He creates a golem to uh, basically mop the floor. Mm. He falls asleep. He wakes up. Uh, The house is filled with water. He's drowning. He's about to die. The sorcerer comes home, casts a spell to put the golems back to just being brooms and then saves the day. And it's over. What I get from that is that the ability to use language is a god power that we gloss over because it's just been a part of our lives since the beginning. Mm -hmm. But language is magic. Mm-hmm. Um, the first magical spell books were called grimoires mm-hmm. and that's where we get the word grammar to cast a spell
1: was
0: right. literally to spell and we have 68,000 thoughts a day. We're casting 68,000 spells mm-hmm. a day and the thing about journaling that meditation doesn't seem to get to in the same way that journaling does is it brings your awareness to the spell casting that you're already doing. Right. Everyone listening, you're already doing it. You've casted probably 40,000 spells today if you're listening to this in the evening. Yeah. I think the potential for what a human could be is dramatically correlated to how conscious can they be of the percentage of the spell castings that they do per day.
1: Totally. Totally. The highest I've ever felt in my life was about a two-week period last summer where I had written in my journal, I feel that I am conscious of about 90% of the thoughts that are crossing the threshold of my mind. And it was astonishing. And it took a lot of practice to get there. I had learned a little bit about NLP and like pattern breaking. I'd been listening and training myself with Uh, the law of attraction every morning listening to the Abraham teachings and so I was really in that space and I would catch myself like first thing in the morning I would pop out of bed because I was just so happy I was waking up so happy every day brushing my teeth I'd look in the mirror and I'd hear myself say in my mind like oh you look great today you look happy today that's how it starts and then you're suddenly you're on this trajectory of like oh, well, I'm going to turn on my favorite music now. And, and then you're riding that wave. And then you're just doing the net. And then you want to open the window and you get the fresh air versus like you pull yourself out of bed. You think, oh God, I look so tired today. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I have so much to do. That's it. I mean, you've already pre-programmed your day, right? So, um, what you're saying is so, so important. I've heard you say this before that spelling is spelling. And again, this was actually something that I learned from the director at Soltara when we were talking, when he was helping me integrate that first set of ayahuasca experiences. He said, you know, you really want to be careful about your writing because it's law. Like what you write down is law. It's your, your, this is why we have marriage contracts that we sign. This is why we sign contracts. That's what law is. We write it down. This is why, this is why people write their intentions on the new moon and the full moon. And you write down what you're going to want to release. And then you, you burn it. And like, these are, these are rituals for constructing the reality that you want. This is, this is an important tool. And I feel like most of us are, highly underutilizing it or misusing it. So this what he warned me basically was like you have been rehearsing your suffering in your diaries and there's a difference between writing them down to remember to honor them but like if you're not summing it up with how you prefer things to be or what you want to create in the future then I, I mean i think i was doing it wrong.
0: Interesting. That's mm. a really good point. Mm. The expressive writing technique that James Pennebaker created for how to process trauma, um, what it asks people to do is for four days in a row, you write stream of consciousness over the same thing. And so people think that it's rumination. But what he finds is that the psyche needs almost no prompting and that it will instinctually, organically, by the third day, start to shift perspective from the first person to the third person and then the whole story changes Mm -hmm. because the first day and day two it's almost always like this is what they did to me this is how they made me feel but then instinctually it shifts from we or it like it it becomes a third person object that the the new observer moves out of the body into almost like a god view Mm -hmm. and what you're saying is now like reminding me that like that's probably something that I should implement into the course is like at the end of the at the end of your journaling day articulate how you would want this to be Mm. and I think just having that little add-on is very powerful because I agree with what he is saying what you're saying
1: Mm. this is what goal setting is you know when people set goals and like Tim Ferriss talks about this in his books and all his stuff and this is what intentions really are. If it's, it's our roadmap. And so to write it down is like super, super, super powerful. And whether you're in the entrepreneurial space, business space, whether you're doing deep shadow work, whether you're on a spiritual journey, it's important for you to write down what you want with as much specificity and, and, and this is the most important part, emotion
0: mm.
1: that you can Yep. because what does it really mean to want to make a hundred thousand dollars this year it doesn't really mean anything but the feeling that you might get if you make a hundred thousand dollars this year is what it's freedom so you want to write about the freedom you want to think about what does it feel like when I can take my friends out to lunch and just swipe my card and, not ha- and I feel so good about treating right. everybody? Or what does it feel like when I can just hop on a plane and I don't really have to think about whether or not I can get it? Or how do I feel driving that new car? It's the feeling you want. It's not, the, it's not a physical item, right. right? So it's this. if we can marry the power of the written word with intentionally selecting our emotions that we want to f- feel out of the quantum field, this is where magic happens.
0: I completely agree. Your unconscious mind is millions of years old. The part of your mind that uses language is like 100,000 years old. It's a baby. The big, old, powerful part of your brain, which is the majority of the processing power that's happening, that's creating your consciousness, doesn't understand language, doesn't respond to language. It responds to emotions and to images because that's how we communicated with our brothers and sisters in the tribe for hundreds of thousands of years before we ever even developed language. So if you're just writing about what it is you want to call into the world, you're only asking a sliver of your power to do that but if you anchor it to an emotion and if you envision something that you want to see to anchor the emotion and the language to your calling forward the god that's inside of you
1: mm. this is so important and i'm even thinking about something as as small again i think we talked about this again on on my podcast but the the idea of wanting to manifest something like for a lot of people, it's I want my life partner, my ultimate life partner. So you might write that down. You might do the exercise. I do this and so with some of my clients of, okay, we're going to go through the list of ideal traits that you want in a partner. We're going to be as detailed and specific as possible. Um, but and then and then what I usually do with them is to say, okay, then what's the next step? Who do you have to become to embody? who this woman or man would want to be with. What is your work in that? The trap that a lot of people fall into when they think they're manifesting is they're actually working with the wrong side of the coin. So for example, if I'm trying to attract a life partner and I write, okay, I want a life partner, I want them to have all these things, and then it doesn't happen right away, I'm like, okay, I'm, I've been trying to like manifest this person for a long time. It's not, maybe I really am gonna be alone forever. Maybe I have this, maybe I have that. You see how the mind will think it's doing one thing and trick you and what you're really doing is you're creating more of the emotion of, oh, I am alone. I'm not gonna find that person. So we have to be really vigilant when we're doing this to it's like, okay, wrote the list of ideal traits, Now I'm going into that vision space you're talking about in meditation, and I am feeling the feelings of having it. So for me, when I was doing this, I was envisioning the feeling of when you're in the bedroom and you're looking into the eyes of a lover that adores you and you feel totally safe and they would do anything for you, and you feel that expansive, cell-exploding love. So I would, for five minutes a day, I don't even know whose eyes they were. They were just a set of eyes of my lover looking at me like that with such desire and reverence, that's how I entrained myself to get used to the feeling of of receiving that. How on earth am I going to receive something I don't know how to feel? So you can't let yourself get trapped into the victim mindset of if something doesn't happen right away, it's because there's a loose nut that needs to be tightened. And you need to practice on a physical level. The body is, like you said, the body has such ancient wisdom. I was thinking about this the other day. Like, Modern medicine is great, but women, I was thinking about women giving birth before all of this, like standing on bricks, putting a stick in each other's mouth to bite down on, clamping down on boiling water, and babies being born, and we are still here, and they were doing that. It's like, that is some fucking innate wisdom that just lives in the DNA, and yet... We put the mind on a pedestal. The mind is great. The mind does all sorts of things and we can thank modern science and technology for it. But God damn, the body has a lot of wisdom. When you feel a feeling, when you're nervous, when you're anxious, when you're, listen, like tune in. There's some some gold there just waiting to be unearthed. We just, we take it all for granted.
0: What is your vision and emotion for the completion of this project?
1: This book is a gift to myself, really. I think that, I, I, I can't remember who did this, but I, I saw somebody dedicate their own book to themselves and I was like, gangster, hell yeah. yeah, like I wanna do that. Um, but what I've learned is in order to be of service to the world, we first need to focus on healing ourselves because or else anything that you do is performative. So for me, I don't know what this book is intending to be. It's, it really has taken on a life of its own. All I know is that it's part of my healing process and I show up like I would for a job or somebody that I love every day and I say, I'm here for you. What do you want to do today? And the book writes itself and I trust it. And I don't know, will it sell millions of copies? That would be great. If it doesn't, did I waste my time? Absolutely not. Cause I am growing and healing so much from this process that to me, that is my job. My job is to show up and be the best version of myself that I can because as within, so without, as above, so below, and this is how it works.
0: For people who haven't journaled every day, if they felt resonance with you when you said that I think that where this all starts is healing myself, what would you offer them to begin doing?
1: Carving out a space for yourself to do that and to journal, to journal and just write it in, write it into your whether it's in the morning, like Julia Cameron says, to do the morning pages and to show up and to write your three pages stream of consciousness. Don't self edit, just sit down and do it. Let your brain word vomit. That's one way for me. I really like end of day, and that's just my preference because I like to look back this is very Steiner, like Steiner would have all of the teachers in the Waldorf schools supposedly go back through their day mentally in reverse order and reflect on all their moments, especially with the children and like Mm. how they were that day and then envision how they might want to do it differently and actually like tune into the energy of each child in their class, really profound. So for me, I like end of day because I work backwards and I think about like Oh, yeah, that conversation. Really didn't like how I showed up for that person today. Okay, heard. Cool. Not going to criticize myself, but just going to note that mentally for next time in that similar mm-hmm. situation. So I'll go back through. And then the last thing that I do, this is actually a great way for people to start journaling if they've never done it before. Um, gratitude practice right before bed. Why? It will prime you to go into your dream space in a really positive way and then Mm. you can go and you can go do deeper work so the very last thing that I do is I entrain myself I program my mind by rehearsing the things that went well that day
0: my mind is spinning
1: yeah so it's not that I'm bypassing everything that I you know that went wrong so to speak Mm. whatever that even means it's that I'm choosing to take my flashlight and go okay this is what I want more of. Yes, please, universe. I really liked today when my friends made that beautiful feast and we sat down together in candlelight and we had that fascinating conversation. Yes, more of that. I really liked the warm of the sun on my skin and the birds chirping. I really liked that love I exchanged with that person. That was so juicy. That felt amazing. And you're rehearsing it. And then what do you do? Your nervous system is bubbling over with that joy you're relaxed you fall into your sleep dreaming of all the people you love all the projects you're excited about and then
0: i you i can see my mind creating a new habit that i'm about to do i know (laughs) where in the room it's going to happen i know what i'm going to buy to make it beautiful that's amazing and that completely resonates i've never journaled at night and that makes complete sense Like, that is the bridge to having dope-ass dreams. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about what you know about Steiner, because everything that you've ever said with his name in the sentence has piqued my mind in the same way that Jung does.
1: Have you ever read the book by... Have you ever read any of Steiner's work? No. Yo. It's pretty esoteric, but you're an esoteric dude. Gonna love it. The book that I would start with uh, for you would be How to Know Higher Worlds.
0: Brandon Duncan actually gifted me that book. It's on my bookshelf.
1: Well, then that's a message for you, sir. Um, It will teach you a lot about the subtle realms of energy and how to tune into things beyond the physical world and um, begin to understand how energy works and how to manipulate it in these much more intricate sort of ways. So he was a, I mean, he was a really brilliant thinker, German philosopher. Um, The Waldorf school, I think is named the Waldorf school. I could be wrong on this, but I think it's because the first one was created out of the, like a Waldorf Astoria or like cigarette factory or something. So Mm. that's where the name came from. But the idea behind the education at least, and a lot of the Waldorf education there's some elements of Goethe in there and like the color theory is huge. We teach children all about color when we're teaching painting in Waldorf. We don't just give children all of the colors at once. Like most schools would we'll just be like, here's all the colors, create something. And
0: I can feel this anger in me from the <laughs> education that I got from public schools. Mm. Like mm. when I hear you talk about this, there's yeah. this part in me that's, that's angry because I see the beauty and what's being articulated, and I connect to the vapid emptiness of what I got. Yeah. Wow.
1: It's one of the things about our world that needs to change. I actually had a download about this the other day because I've been focusing a lot on adults recently. Um, Moved out of teaching, moved out of nannying for celebrities, moved into this kind of coaching space that we're in now. But I had to download that I will be moving back into working with children and creating new curriculum and kind of being, I, I feel like on the forefront of creating what will be a new education system for our world, hopefully, or at least North America, because this needs an overhaul. And um, part of it was, and, and I so what I heard was, yes, you've been focusing on adults the future is in expanding the consciousness of the children. Yeah. So I was like, oh yeah, dope, of course. So that's, anyway, that's, that's what I will go back to at that portion of my life. But what I was saying about the color theory was like in Waldorf, they don't give you all the colors at once. And a lot of parents are like, that's so restrictive. No, man, it's like, if you're given, uh, 17 chocolate bars. You're like, man, I don't really like chocolate that much. This is whatever. It's kind of like dating apps, too. If you have all these options, you're like, mm. but like when you get yellow, okay, we give yellow first. Yellow is the teacher will come, the blank page, it's watercolor. So it's just a blank white page with water. Teacher dips their paintbrush in with this yellow paint, this yellow watercolor paint. The children are all gathered around her desk. They don't even get their paper yet. They just have to watch. She'll start telling a story about the sun and this little drop of golden sun and she'll put the yellow on the paper and the children, they're they're enraptured listening to her story as she characterizes the color yellow on the page. They are in love with yellow. They're feeling that physical embodiment of the sun, they're charged up. They're getting one color at the end of that lesson and they cannot wait. They're just itching to go back and play with yellow and get to intimately know yellow. And then the next week, teachers gonna blow their minds when she brings in blue, just blue. Now she's removed yellow. They don't, they don't have the yellow jar anymore. Okay, just blue. What is blue? Blue's like this mood of like the cool and the ice and maybe she's talking about that and the ocean and she's dipping it in a little water and she's spreading it out and it's fading and she's creating this whole just beautiful landscape with one fucking color. And then the next week she'll let them have two jars So they'll have blue and yellow, and oh my gosh, now they can make grass, they can make trees, they can make this whole world with green. Oh my gosh, did you? now there's a meaning behind green. Because if you just give a kid green, it's like, oh, this is green, which is separate from these other colors. No, like everything melts together to create something new. These are the repercussions of combining any energy. This is alchemy.
0: Oh my god. <laughs> Tell me more about Steiner.
1: Okay, well I don't I am not an expert on Steiner, but he um mostly familiar with him in the context of Waldorf education, brilliant German philosopher, most famous for his lectures. You can go online and find his lectures, and they are pretty dense, like most we had to read them as part of being a Waldorf teacher. Waldorf schools are also run by the teachers, so it's like a, it's not really, there. there isn't always a principal per se. It's ideally run by the board of the teachers, we have reading groups, there's a lot of self-education. The teachers go back every summer to learn the next year of curriculum. Cause in Waldorf, you start with a class in first grade and you loop up with them all the way to the eighth grade. So- are,
0: Why are we doing it so wrong? I don't know, man. Oh my God. So
1: it's almost like this other parent, right? Ugh. And you have this person that you to can depend on that that is gonna be there every single year, right? And- People used to ask me, oh, don't you, what if you get a child that like really bothers you? I'm like, yeah, that's the work, man. If I'm triggered by something, that's my work. I have to learn to love beyond all my bullshit. And this this is what the kids have to learn too is like, Things aren't always easy. We have to work on relationships and you don't just get to bail out on people at the end of the school year. That's not how life really works. So um, I think there was just such a beauty to that. But anyway, yeah. So Steiner, read his lectures. He says some stuff that's like really wild. He'll talk about uh, the dark, dark forces that work to like arumanic, luciferic forces and... Anyway, I encourage people if they're interested. I like how to know higher worlds. It's a little bit dense. um, But if it's right and it meets you at the right time, it will explode your mind.
0: What do you see as the next practical step that can be taken on your behalf to improve the education system? Or is it not a next step, it's a whole new staircase? Like what's your intuition about what that's going to look like?
1: Well, I think that every single parent wants to be a good parent, right? I I I truly believe that every person wants to be a good person too. So except Karen. I'm joking. So I love you, Karen. My mom's probably listening to this because her name's Karen. She probably thinks you're she's not getting the the pop culture (laughs) 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 reference. She thinks that's her. I'm
0: talking about you, Karen.
1: Um I really think that innately all of us desire to be good. I think that our lenses get skewed on what good is and we have these ideas of like what good means and that's I mean that's therein lies the problem. So with parenting I think it's something that everybody is, feels insecure about and that everybody wants to do a good job on. And there's just such a lack of understanding or education. It's almost like our parents need education to know how to educate their children. Some countries actually do a better job at this. Like they'll give a, a gift basket for every new mother. And there's just like stuff in there and there's support, there's literature. We don't have anything like that. It's like you're on your own and this this is problematic. So. I think that part of what my work was when I was teaching in the Waldorf schools was it was part of my responsibility to lead parent nights like once every couple months. So here I was 23 years old. How dare you? With a group of 20 parents, 30 parents. I didn't have kids, but I was like, here, let me tell you about parenting. (laughs) I was, it was really scary, but Steiner does such a beautiful job of articulating where a child's development is at and where the psychology is at. Like one small example is, when I was teaching third grade, there's this change that Steiner talks about called the nine-year-old change. This is very much connected to myth and ego. He says around this time, the nine-year-old change is where the child's ego starts to really consolidate and it is their metaphorical fall from grace. It is the story of Adam and Eve leaving the garden and it's like they they feel that shame for the first time. So before that, there's this idea of the child being their parents. It's like you don't really have your own beliefs at seven, right? You're kind of just like your world is school and home and you believe what your parents believe. Like if your parents like mushroom pizza, you probably like mushroom pizza. If your parents think this thing is good, then you probably think this thing is good. By the time you get to nine, you start to see the cracks. And you're like, not everything they're saying is true. And that's when you see kids start to be like, what time's bedtime? 930? And the parents like, yeah, 930. And they're like, how about how about ten? You know, and they start to push the buttons. And um, this is all part of them discovering themselves as the individual. But it's also the time where kids will start to ask questions about death. They'll start to have deeper nightmares they start to feel really insecure about certain things and about their bodies. And they'll, no, they'll notice differences in people. Like they might say, and so-and-so is really fat, or that person has yellow teeth. And you're like, oh, how horrible, my child is all of a sudden becoming this. But they're just starting to discern and try and understand and create form out of the world. So um, this is the nine-year-old change. And Steiner designs the curriculum of the third grade year to parallel what the psychological the inner world the spiritual world is is doing in the child so for example it's very focused on again we call them the hebrew myths um and it's not like waldorf education is innately christian it's not it's just like drawing from all these different religions to create but the third grade is focused on on hebrew stories i remember teaching that year and having a lot of parents be like i have like contraction around the christianity stuff because i was raised in that and it like triggered me and so i had it was something i had to like say like hey this has merit like these are stories this is all story and so but we would tell the story of moses and the burning bush and the parting of the red seas and this idea of moses starts off being like, I don't want this. God appears in this burning bush and is like, hey, you're going to lead the pe- people to Israel. He's like, I don't want to do it. Nah. I don't want to do it. I'm not ready. And God's like, you're doing it. And so he has to go on this whole thing. He like wrestles with his faith. He like, I don't know if I can do this. Shit's going down. There's like, he has to, part the fucking seas. He has to like dig deep within, in him. It's like that elephant climbing the rainbow, right? He has to like do the impossible. And this is like his, his journey, his coming of age, almost. This is his whole trajectory. Kids love the story of Moses. It's like a, such a hero's journey for them, especially children at this age are like, okay, this is him leaving, going off, setting off, doing the thing, and there's there's something about the way that it ends with him leading the people that I think plants a seed in children going, okay, well, if he could do that, then I'm going to be okay. And, you know, if Adam and Eve could have that hard, really hard experience um, and then go create humanity... Okay, so so hard things can happen, and I can still overcome it. Like these are the subtle, again, entrainments that are happening in the feeling world of children when we when we plant these story seeds.
0: If I fucking love it. I'm gonna go back to school and go to w- Waldorf or Waldorf. Waldorf. <laughs> Waldorf.
1: <laughs> you can actually. There are many Steiner uh, training schools, which. People can, uh, uh, there's adult education. You can learn all of this. You can learn to watercolor paint. You can learn all the stories. You can learn the music. It's amazing.
0: What, and this will be the question to close the loop. What is your current favorite story?
1: What is my current favorite story?
0: Or maybe a different way to articulate is what story right now most resonates with you? Hmm.
1: It's hard to say exactly a story, but what came to mind when you said this was the phrase spiral dynamics and spiraling. And this image of a spiral, because I think this year for me was really, I felt like I was regressing. I felt like I had climbed to this spiritual height and then just fell so hard on my face. And then there was the shame with that. And now being on the other side of that a little bit, I understand that in every hero's journey, we forget, we remember, we go down the elevator, we go back up, and like the directionality of it is an illusion. So to anybody listening who's in a part of their story that feels like, wait a minute, I've been here before, I should have learned this lesson, why didn't I do this, why didn't I do that, what is, you know, stop. Recognize that you're in one of those 68,000 thoughts and that the trajectory of that thought is maybe leading you to entrain yourself with more of that negativity to come back, to stop it and say, okay, how do I desire to feel? Yes, I'm feeling this right now. Okay, where do I want to be? And then to take that extra step that we were talking about and try and embody the emotion of that, whether it's through just visualization, journaling, making sounds with your voice putting on music that makes you want to dance whatever it is move that energy in the direction that you want it and trust that that spiraling is part of the journey and that in the end you get to choose how your story ends
0: holly thank you for spiraling on this podcast today i love you i love you (laughs) Gang gang.